glad to hear that. Um, so God's doing good things. God's doing big things here, and that's, that's fantastic. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And we are not doing a Mother's Day sermon. I kind of touched on this during the announcements. I don't like to do that because I feel like that singles people out. You can get good preaching, uh, exegetical sermons, or we can do a topical sermon that makes people feel isolated and uh, un unneedingly so. Um, I've been in a church before. I've shared this. I think I share this every Mother's Day, actually. I've been in a church before where on Mother's Day, the husband will come with the, the wife or the, the dad will come with mom and the kids on Mother's Day. And the sermon is all about how, Dad, you should be awesome like mom. Isn't mom awesome? And that's not wrong. Mom is awesome. Mom's great. Right? But then come Father's Day, the message is, Dads, you need to be a little bit better. Dads, couldn't you just step it up a little bit? And then come August at the, at the work day, the pastor scratches his head and says, Where, where'd all the men go? Well, the two times they came this year, you were kind of hard on them. So that, that ends up being the case a lot of times. And so I don't like to, I, I don't even, and some of you know this, I don't even like to change up the message plan or whatever for Easter or Christmas because I think every sermon should point us to the cross. Amen? Amen. So it's kind of uh, one of those things I don't really try to break stride too much except for possibly Easter or Christmas and and uh, maybe if, if the Holy Spirit leads in another way. But today we're looking at, in Mark chapter 12, and what we're seeing happen is Christ has kind of been running a gauntlet, or he's right in the middle of one. And if you're not familiar with what a gauntlet is, it used to be, uh, you remember the, the show uh, American Gladiators? You ever watched that show? It was basically the equivalent of a tennis match and pro wrestling combined. Because they had a lot of tennis balls, they'd shoot at people and things they'd hit each other with. And, and the gauntlet was this one obstacle course that the contestants had to run through. And they had, to, they had to cross obstacles, and then they had to literally fight back some of the gladiators. And, and if they made it to the end, big if, if they made it to the end, they could go on to the final round, the, the next fight. And that's kind of what Jesus is in right now. The last couple of weeks, he's had to deal with the religious leaders, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests. And now they send the second round to him. And next week, he's going to have the third round and, and so on. And it just keeps, it keeps going. This is the last week of Jesus' life, and he's not getting a break. He's not really getting a day off. And so we read this today. The title of the message is, Render to Caesar. And that's one of Jesus' most quotable things, isn't it? We hear people, even non-Christians will sometimes say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's around tax time. And we always miss the second part of that, where he says, render to Caesar to see what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the, thing, the, the message today is, have we rendered to God what, is, what should be devoted to him? So, if you will, stand with me as we read this morning, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, you may be seated this morning. I'm just going to pray, Father God, I just pray this message penetrate our hearts. And that you bring us into obedience. You bring us into giving you our sincere heart, Father God. And just a life of submission to you. A life devoted to you, Father. I pray that we take that home. That we take that part of the, the service home. That we are to belong to the Father. And we ask this in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, you may be seated. Um, if you're taking notes this morning... And you want the one point from the message to take home. It's kind of similar to the previous couple of weeks that God is after our heart. God does not want your money. He wants a sincere heart. Now, I've preached on giving already this year back in January. This message, I promise you, it's not about tithing so much and, and offering, and it really isn't. It's, it's about the placement of our heart when it comes to Christ. Like I said, Jesus runs the gauntlet. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they are an unholy alliance, by the way, and we'll, we'll look at what that means. These men come together to try and corner Jesus on one of the most sensitive topics that you could come and try and pin somebody on money. Who here likes to talk about their money? Not many people, right? We don't like to talk. Unless you have a lot of money and you're kind of a jerk, you probably don't like to talk about money. And the thing is, they come to Jesus and they try to pin him on this topic. They, they are two different sides of the, of the spear here. You have the Pharisees, the religious, and you have the Herodians, the political. And together they, they make this pointed spear tip to try and, and pin him, like Saul pinning David to the wall. They're trying to do something of that nature to Jesus. But they're fixated on the money. They're fixated on the taxes and whose loyalty is represented by the taxes. And we'll get into that as we go as well. But Jesus' focus is truly on the heart. God doesn't want your money. God wants a sincere heart. And so we read it back in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The NET, the New English translation says, trap him in his own words. I like that. That sounds a little more clear as to what their, their goal is. You see, the, the religious elite, the chiefs, the elders, the scribes, they'd, they'd had enough of him. They'd come to Jesus. They'd quizzed him about his authority, where he gets his authority. Now, if you're, if you're a teacher, if, you're ever, if you've ever been a preacher, one of, the, one of the hardest questions to know how to take from someone is, where do you, where do you get all this? By what authority do you say these things? It's one reason when I preach and I teach, I, I try to show in, in Scripture where these things are. If you ever want to know where my research comes from, hey, come and ask me. I'll show you the commentaries I've looked at. This isn't a Jeff just spinning things of his own up here, okay? That's never the goal. Because we, we do need to speak from a point of authority, whether it's ours or someone else's we've learned from. And so when they come to Jesus and they ask him, by what authority do you say these things? It's really an insult. 
They're saying, where did you get your education? Where did you learn these things? Who taught you these things? And so Jesus says, well, I'll answer that question if you can answer mine. And if you remember, that was, that was kind of the way you debated back then. They had to earn the answer and they couldn't do it. And then Jesus does answer the question by telling a parable and they don't like it, so they run away. And when they run away, they send, they send this group of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, they have had an alliance since Mark chapter 3. If you recall, when the Pharisees got upset with Jesus, they went to the Herodians to try and figure out a way how to destroy Jesus. So these two parties have been together in this, like I said, an unholy alliance. They've come together. They hate each other. These two parties do not get along. And they can't hide who they are. Luke tells us, Luke 20, verse 20, says that they sent them as spies who were to pretend to be sincere so as to deliver him up to the authorities and the governor. You know what that tells us? In Luke, he says they sent them as spies. And Mark, Mark knows exactly who they are. These people were not exactly James Bond. Okay, they weren't, hide, they weren't very good spies. They weren't hiding who they were. And so they come to Jesus and they're supposed to be, oh, Jesus, you're so great. We're so glad you're here. And they want to seem sincere, but everybody sees right through it because they know who these people are. They're Pharisees and they're Herodians. The Pharisees were concerned about religion and not, not the kind of religion that takes you into holiness, the religion that bogs you down with legalism. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were more politically minded. They were focused on government and advancing themselves in the Roman Empire. The Pharisees concerned themselves with the law of God and the traditions that they'd posted all around that to make sure that people could think that they were holy and think that they were good. And the, the Herodians were concerned with not the law of God, but the law of Rome. You see, they wanted to find favor with the centurions. They wanted to find favor with Herod, hence the name Herodian, right? They wanted to find favor with those in charge. And while the Herodians loved Herod, the Pharisees loved Caiaphas and Annas. They, they respected the temple and those who ran the temple. That, but, but here's the common thread. Despite all their differences, and they did not like each other. You know, we always think Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like each other. That's in the religious realm. But in just the Jewish lifestyle, Herodians and Pharisees did not typically mix together. But how many of you ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Ah, so guess what they've done? They've paired up. And their enemy is this guy, this, this carpenter from Nazareth. Who does he think he is? This rabbi. He calls himself a rabbi. And, and his disciples Think of him as some great teacher. Well, they both want Jesus dead. The Pharisees, John tells us, John eleven fifty three, 53, they want Jesus dead. The Herodians, Luke 13, 31, tells us the Herodians want Jesus dead. So we both want the same thing. So how about we put aside the religion, let's put aside the politics, and let's work to nail this guy, pun intended. Okay, let's do it. Now, like I said, they... The Herodians, we haven't talked much about the Herodians, but they loved to follow the Roman way of life. They were, they were, I would almost call them disciples of Herod, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, by the way, was a Jewish leader who wasn't really Jewish. He was a Roman shill, 
is what some people like to call him. He was the governor of uh, Galilee and Perea. He, he watched over the, those territories, and he was a Roman puppet. He didn't care about the Jewish way of life. He didn't care about what his actions did to the Jewish people. He was supposed to represent them, but he only cared about himself and advancing his own agenda within the Roman Empire. Now, the Pharisees would resent this man, even more so his followers, because they saw Rome as a form of divine punishment. Rome was an oppressor. Rome was somebody who kept them down. I don't know why they would feel that way. I mean, it's not like in their history the Jewish people have had other countries do that to them, right? Oh, wait. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria. Yeah, we kind of understand why they don't like Rome, right? This has been their habit of having to fall under these people. And they see Rome as the hand of God keeping them down. And rather than change and worship God rightly, they just resent Rome. So they resent the Herodians. The Herodians, meanwhile, would see Rome as a means of political advancement. They were a, they were a way to make myself rich. They were a, an organization we could pair up with and advance ourselves, make ourselves better, get one over on my neighbor type of thing. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, like I said, they form this unholy alliance to try and pin Jesus. The Pharisees are going to come at him theologically, and the Herodians are going to come at him politically. Now, when they ask him this question that they're going to ask, it is so pointed, he, only, he doesn't have any way out of this from the, from the way of looking at it from their perspective. And they come to him, and this is what they say, verse 14, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, had they just come and asked that question, Jesus would have been pinned to the wall. They would have had him. But they make a mistake, you see. They speak the truth about Jesus. They paint him up to be this truth-telling, awesome teacher. And so what he's going to have to do is live up to that, regardless of the consequences. Now let's break down their flattery for just a second. They come to him, they know, they know him as teacher. That's the Greek word didaskale. We've talked about that a little bit. It means instructor. It's somebody who teaches Notice what they don't say to him. They don't say, curios, master. They don't submit to his authority. They know he's a teacher, but he's not their teacher, or they would have called him Rabboni. He's not their master. They're not there to be disciples of him. But they come to him and they try to flatter him, and what they admit here is that even even Jesus' enemies recognize the prime focus of his ministry. He's a teacher. He comes to teach people. Back in chapter 1, he said that's the whole reason he came, was to teach. But then if you will, go ahead to the next slide. The four things they say, the four flattering things they say to him, we know you are true. The Greek here means that he's genuine, he's reliable. Jesus is a man of integrity. 
Jesus is consistent. He does not deceive. He does not commit false promises to bring in more people to follow him. This is all true. They mean that it's flattery, but it's fact. John 14, 6, Jesus is going to take this a step further. He's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he's saying he is the supreme truth. Now, they've already said this. He's true. There, there's no manipulation tactics in Jesus Christ. And the second thing they say is, you do not care about anyone's opinion. Hmm. What, he's, what they're saying is, you don't preach for man's approval. You don't preach so that people like you. You don't teach so that you can seek favor or scratch itching ears or please somebody. Or You don't try to flatter anybody else. However, they are trying to flatter him. They're trying to make him drop his guard. But he's not swayed by appearances, they said. Right? Jesus does not fear the people. They fear the people. We've established that in the last few weeks. They definitely fear the people. But Jesus does not care. By their own words, Jesus does not care how he may appear to them in his teaching, nor does he concern himself with their appearances. Jesus loves without prejudice. Jesus teaches without prejudice. Jesus saves without prejudice. If they come to him. Jesus is the same despite the crowd that stands in front of him. Now they may fear the crowds. Jesus loves the crowd. Jesus will die for the crowd. The crowd is why he came. Because God so loved the world. He gave his only son. If only they believe they have eternal life. And yet because of this they will hate him. In doing this, and saying all this, they, they actually tip their hand a little bit. You see, Jesus may not fear the people, but they want to drive a wedge between Jesus and the people. They want the people to fear him, or at least be concerned about something he says, or fear what his teaching might lead to. And so far, that's not been a problem for them. That's not been a problem for Jesus. And in their final part of flattery, they say, you truly, there's that truth again, you truly teach the way of God. Now, they don't believe this. They don't believe this for one second because if they did, when they came to him, they wouldn't have called him didascale. They would have called him master. They don't believe this or they wouldn't have come to question him. They would have come to follow him. They would have come and actually expected him to give them a reason to repent and be his disciples. Don't think for one second Jesus was fooled by this. In fact, we know that already because Luke's version of this. But he wasn't fooled. He wouldn't, we know they wouldn't be there as Herodians. They wouldn't be there as Pharisees. If they truly meant all these things, they would be there as wannabe disciples. They wouldn't be there trying to flatter him. They would be there trying to follow him. And many today are the same way. Many today say, I love the good things the church does. And so they want to join a church that's active in the community because they want to be active in social programs. They don't want to follow Christ. Many today will say, well, I love the positive teachings of Jesus. They don't want all the teachings of Jesus. 
I love when Jesus tells people, judge not. And that's the only part of their Bible that's highlighted, you'd think, the way they talk. Right? They don't remember the rest of the chapter is about judging people rightly and not being a hypocrite about things. They believe in the kindness of the Christian life. I've heard people say, I love how nice Christians are, but I don't want their Jesus because then I would have to change. You see, that, that's the problem here. They like Jesus as long as he's the Jesus of flattery, but they don't want the ones who's going to, they don't want the Jesus who's going to answer them. They don't want to be the one who has to take up their cross and follow him. Their flattery is just a pretense and it's poison. It's like venom dripping from a honey jar. And Jesus knows this. You notice they, they say these four things and then sneak in the uppercut. They change directions so fast. What in the first four things they said there made you think anything about money? Nothing. Didn't make me think about Caesar. When I'm reading this, I'm thinking, they're telling Jesus how great he is. Now, boom, what do you think about Caesar? What do you think about this tax, right? Is it lawful is the question they ask. That's a pharisaical question. That's a theological question. What's the law say about paying taxes to Caesar? Should we do it or should we not? Now, this tax was the poll tax. It was instituted around 6 AD, and the Jewish people hated the poll tax for a variety of reasons. Three of them being the tax was simply a tax for being alive and being in Rome, for being a Roman citizen. If you existed, you had to pay the poll tax. So for every member of your family, you've got to come up with this money if you want to not be under Roman punishment. Now the Jews felt this was another way of Rome's owning them, their way of dominating them. Like they've taken over our country, now they charge us to live there. And it wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't really that big of a deal, but it was what it represented that made them so angry. Now, the money that came in from it, from this poll tax, actually went to fund the military. And what did the military do? They oppressed the Jewish people. That's like paying your bully to come, like, like giving, being forced to give your lunch money to your bully so he keeps coming back to bully you. Ever seen that on TV? That doesn't usually work out well at the end for the bully, does it? Well, it worked out well for Rome. The, fair, the, sorry, the Herodians would not mind this. In their mindset, it is their privilege to get to pay Rome. It's their joy to get to pay Rome. In fact, if they could get this Jesus guy to talk good about the poll tax, what would that be? That would be this local celebrity endorsing Rome, endorsing a government thing. We've seen plenty of that in the last few years, right? I don't need Ed Helms or Steve Carell to tell me how great a government policy is, but yet they'll parade these celebrities around and tell us we should listen to them because why? They're actors? People who get paid money to, to say what's on a piece of paper? Why would I care what LeBron James has to say? The man didn't, I mean, he graduated high school. The, the fact is, that's what they do. And that's, I imagine the Herodians were excited for this as long as he was on their side. Yet they would still happily go with the Pharisees to turn him in 
and try and have him arrested. The Pharisees hated this tax because it reminds them of Roman subjugation. So if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, the Herodians are happy, but the Pharisees are going to look at him and they're going to say, how dare you? You're not a real Jew. You're just an Uncle Tom. That's, that's the phrase, a common phrase that we use nowadays, but that's be about what they would be saying. He doesn't have a Jewish allegiance. He has a Roman allegiance. He's pretending to be a Jewish rabbi. He's, he's a, a shill of Rome, no different than Herod. And if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful, well, the Pharisees would be happy, but the Herodians would have him arrested, and the Pharisees would be happy to go with them to do so, because now he's undermining Caesar himself. He's this upstart revolutionary. He's this nobody who thinks he's going to overthrow our taxes. Who does he think he is? So the trap is set. Jesus is going to expose himself surely as one of three things. He's either a religious zealot, an anti-Roman political figure, or he's going to be some kind of sellout. And what they have really done is they've exposed, they care more about manipulating Jesus than they really care about the answer. This is not really about a tax. This is not about money. This is not about Rome. This whole thing is about the heart. Who they are really in allegiance to. Now as an aside, and, and back to these four things, a person with a reputation for standing for truth Given the opportunity, what are they going to do? Stand for truth. They want to be truthful. They want to live up to that reputation. They've earned it. It's a good reputation to have. In fact, their flattery is going to backfire on them. You ask for the truth, you're going to get the truth. You say Jesus doesn't, doesn't care about what people think. Well, his answer to them is going to show he doesn't care what they think. They set the bar pretty, hard, pretty high. Now, if Jesus defers his answer, if he tries to get out of it like he did with the scribes and the, the high priests and things like that, he can't really do that here. Because he has, to, he has to pick a side on this. And if he fails to follow through or he avoids it entirely, his integrity is going to be shattered. But Jesus, you're a man of truth. You can't give us an answer? Oh, who are you really then? You see, it's very deceptive. In Luke 20, 21, they actually say to him, you speak rightly, you teach rightly, you show no partiality. That word rightly is the Greek word orthos. It's where we get the idea for orthodoxy. In other words, what they're saying to him is you speak in a straight path, you speak in an orthodox way, or we might say today, you speak biblically. Your answer would be grounded in the law. Your answer would be grounded in the prophets and the Psalms and, and those things. So Jesus cannot give an unorthodox or an unscriptural answer, nor can he talk deceptively and try and lie his way out. Not that Jesus would. They don't understand Jesus at all. All of these things are true about him. But what better way to try and pin him and humiliate him in front of an audience than by talking about money? Money is a sensitive topic. Most marriages, when they fail, or if they fail, I should, should say if they fail, if they fail, it's going to be about money. 
Money shows us our priorities. I had someone tell me years ago, if you show me your checkbook or your checking account or your bank account and where your money goes, I will show you your priorities. I'll show you what matters most to you. Now what's interesting about this is that previously they'd attacked Jesus theologically. In this text, they, they attack him about money and next week they're going to attack him about marriage. There's no three more sensitive topics to really try and argue with somebody, right? Amen? Okay, you guys are still awake. All right. But again, it's never about the money. It's about where their heart is. In verse 15, it says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So their false flattery has proven to be true statements. He says, Why are you trying to test me? Why are we doing this? He's truthfully saying what they're doing. It doesn't catch him off guard by their false appearances. He doesn't care if this accusation upsets them. That's everything they said about him. And he's going to answer rightly because he does know the way of God, because he is God. And so these men are standing there now completely exposed by him just answering with another question. Why do you test me? Bring Jesus a Roman denarius. Now we have a picture of one, if we can. I don't know if this is from the exact time of Jesus, but you see on the left there, that is the picture of uh, the Caesar, Caesar Tiberius. And around him, around the coin in this time, it would have said Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side, you see that lady sitting there. That would be Livia, Tiberius's mom. And it actually says Maxim Pontiff. Some, Romans, uh, some Roman way of writing it is Pontiff Maximus. We don't really have a, a title like that anymore, except for the man who still sits in Rome, the, the Pope. It means high priest. So on this coin, you have Tiberius and the inscriptions calling him divine, calling him uh, the highest priest. It's a small silver coin. It was about $150 today is what it would be, about a day's wage. And the reason Jesus didn't carry one himself is the same reason most Jewish people wouldn't carry them themselves. Because of all these things, it was basically a pocket idol. It was a graven image. It was a way to, to worship Caesar. Now this is what they used to pay the poll tax. This one coin covered the whole thing. So you're really upset about one day's wage going to a tax. No, it's not that. It's the point of the matter. To the Jewish mindset, Caesar was claiming to be divine and the highest priest. You see why that might be an issue for a first century Jewish person. In 17 BC, Caesar Augustus had these coins first minted, saying very similar things as he declared himself God. And these were graven images. Exodus 20 tells us the Ten Commandments, have no other gods, worship no other graven images, no likeness of anything, and call it a god. The Jews themselves would not carry these coins because it was idolatry. Jesus, no doubt, would have seen it as blasphemy. So they would have to pay taxes with the Hebrew coins. Now, I know Lolly's gone overseas. Some of you who have gone in other countries and you've had to exchange money, what typically happens? 
you lose money, right? If I take $100 and I go to Mexico and change that for however many pesos it'll be, and then if I were to turn around, go to the very next window, and have those pesos exchanged for U.S. currency, I'm going to get back about $99. So I lost a dollar. That's what happens. So when the Jewish people go to pay this tax, they pay with Jewish coins, they have to do an exchange for a denarius, and they lose money. So unfairly to the Jew, to the Jewish mind, this is costing me more money. Not only that, you expect me, if I want to do this right, I've got to carry around an idol, which I'm not going to do. It'll make me unclean, unfit for the temple. So you understand now why the Jewish people would have really hated this. Now the emperor sees himself as God. Well, Psalm 82 tells us he's going to die like a man. He's not a God. So Jesus holds up this coin and he cuts right to the heart of the matter. Verse 16. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. It's Caesar Tiberius. It's Caesar's face. This idea of Augustus. That's not his name. His name's Tiberius. Augustus was a title planted upon him or given to him by the Senate. It's a religious honor. It means uh, someone of transcendent majesty. So for the Jewish mindset, the only person worthy of August being attached to their name would be reserved, that should be reserved for Yahweh God. He's the only one worthy of transcendent majesty. This, to the Jewish, Jewish mind, it's representing all the Roman arrogance, and especially the arrogance of the Caesars. So you can see why the Pharisees really didn't like this tax. So if Jesus says all of these things, if he says to them and tries to explain to the Herodians why the Jewish people shouldn't pay this tax because of the idolatry and the blasphemy and all of that stuff, well, they're going to have him arrested. They couldn't have him arrested fast enough. But Jesus does not do that. Look what he does do. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, if he just stops there, one thing's going to happen. But he doesn't. He says, and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Imagine in this moment, the crowd grew very quiet as to his response. If Caesar's likeness is on one side of the coin, well, then Jesus is obviously going to side with Rome, isn't he? No. What was the first part of the question they asked him? Is it lawful? The Herodians likely assumed when Jesus says this, well, don't pay taxes. You don't owe Caesar anything. That might be what they're thinking. That's their train of thought here. And with the Herodians mad, the Pharisees would vouch for the validity of their story, have this guy thrown in the prison. Surely Jesus would not be okay with Caesar getting Jewish money. Not that long ago, Jesus shamed and rebuked the Pharisees for taking Jewish money that was supposed to be set aside for one's parents and bringing it into the temple. So surely Jesus wants Jewish money to stay in the Jewish community, right? After all, he's consistent. He doesn't care about Roman opinion. He stands for truth no matter what. But render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And their jaws must have hit the floor. So do we, do we pay the tax, Jesus? Do we, do we not pay the tax? What are, you, what are you getting at here? He finishes, and to God, the things 
that are hit, that are God's, that are his. Okay. Well, they marvel at him. They marvel at him because this truly has to be the only answer that not only answers the question, but it avoids him being, or avoids them being able to accuse him of being religiously or politically motivated. A trap? You think they set a trap for Jesus? What trap? He just blew the jaws right off the trap. He blew the whole thing wide open. The reason his response is so pointed and so powerful is that if you understand ancient coins, if they have somebody's face on them, the mentality is it's their coin. It's theirs. It belongs to them. So who could really be upset with Jesus saying, just give Caesar back his coin? That's what he's saying here. It's almost like money is a government loan or something is the way he looks at this. So, so who could really object to that? Who could be upset with that? Now, in the same sense, Jesus is also affirming that the, Ro the, the Roman government and their power is legitimate. What does he say to Pilate later at the crucifixion? He says, you'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus affirms Rome's power is legitimate. The early church carried this thought. They believed this. They continued in this. Paul says in Romans 13, For this you pay taxes. For authorities or ministers of God pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed and honor to whom honor is owed. G government has its purpose. Paul tells Titus this. He says, remind them, speaking of the church, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work. Government has its purpose. God lets governments do their thing. He allows them to, to rule over the people. Peter says, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Whether it's the emperor, the emperor, governor, honor everyone, fear God, honor the emperor. By saying what he's saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar, he's saying Rome's a legitimate government. You should respect them. You should honor them. But you also give to God the things that are his. Peter will also say in Romans 5, or sorry, Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. If the two things collide... Well, ultimately, we give to God what is God's. We submit to him above all. Christ establishes the governments have a legitimate claim on the things of this world, but that's where their claim ends. Their claim is not universal. Their claim is not eternal. Their claim is not spiritual. When Jesus points to the coin, he says, whose likeness is this? I think Jesus chooses his words very carefully. Because who is humanity made in the likeness of? Well, Genesis tells us, God said, let us, that's the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit speaking, let us make man in our image. The Lord our God is one, and he creates man after, he says, our likeness. If the coin bears Caesar's likeness and Caesar gets the coin, who gets what is made in the image of God or in Latin, imago Dei? Who should receive that? The one whose likeness we bear. 
See, so many times we, we get caught up, we think about the tax. We think about Caesar. We think about the money. We, we think about our own government. But are we giving to God what bears his likeness? Are we submitting to him? You see, God does not care about the money. He cares about you. He wants your sincere heart. Now, I talk about giving to the church and things like that, and we should, because that shows our obedience to him. That is how we worship him. Where our money goes reflects the true desires of our heart. But it's not about the money. It's an emphasis on where our heart truly is. So I'd ask you this morning, where is your heart? Who holds your heart this morning? I'm going to move to close in just a moment. The heart has been the theme for weeks now. And it never, it never fails when I talk about money and I talk, and I even briefly mention giving. I almost always get a, a Facebook message from someone or an email or someone will catch me through the week and they'll say, hey, been meaning to ask you since Sunday, should we tithe on the, the gross or should we tithe on the net? Every time, unless I address it in the sermon like I'm doing right now, I'll, I'll get that call. And here's the thing. God doesn't care. He really doesn't. Now, you want to be technical? You want to look at the Old Testament? It's a tithe is one-tenth from the first fruits of your labor. So technically, yes, you should give from the gross. But if you're a farmer, that's going to bankrupt you. So here's the thing that really matters. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his what? His heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You want to be technical about the Old Testament and the law? Well, the tithe actually, by the time of Malachi, gets to be around 20, 22%. Where's your heart? That's the more important question. Not do I give 10% of this or 10% of that. It's does your giving reflect your obedience? Does your giving reflect your love for Christ? Do you give with a cheerful heart? Where is your heart in Christ? This is what Jesus keeps consistently pointing us back to and pointing them back to. Where is your heart? You see, they had seen all the evidence of who he was. They knew all the evidence of where his authority came from. And yet they refused to accept him. They'd hear the parables and they would run rather than repent. And they'd send the Pharisees and the Herodians and they would marvel. They marvel at his intellect, but they miss the point of his message. He wants our heart. He wants all of it. I'm going to ask Georgette to come back and play. And we're going to close in a song of worship. Today I would challenge you with this. Where is your heart? As we close, we're going to stand. If you would stand with us, we're going to sing. Pray that today. Where, Lord, where is my heart? Do we worship from our heart? Or do we just go through the motions? Do we just sing the songs because the words are on the slide? Where is our heart as we sing today? <laughs>